Welcome to Seemingly Ordinary. It's a podcast about people who on the surface appear to be totally ordinary, but underneath the surface, they have amazing things going on. Tom Ruska took first place in the Chesapeake Man, Chesapeake Bay Ironman with a time of 11 hours, 43 minutes, and 26 seconds. I can't begin to describe just how hard this man, Tom, is willing to work. An Ironman, in case you don't know, starts with a 2.4-mile swim, 112-mile bicycle ride, and concludes with a 26.2-mile foot race, also known as a marathon. And Tom, like I said, came in first place with 11 hours, 43 minutes, and 26 seconds of his body being in constant motion. Tom is also happily married, has three kids, and he helps people stay alive with his job. Today we're going to talk about extreme endurance and what it can do for other parts of your life and how it can benefit people you love. Hey Tom. Hi Tim. Tell me your secret origin story. I want to see if there were any hints in your childhood as to why you became an endurance athlete in the first place. It's funny that you ask about that because uh, in thinking about this beforehand, I realized how much of it God had to do with it and how little of it that I had to do with it. Um, In the summer between my 6th and 7th grade year, going into middle school, I was walking my dog and I started running. The dog went on one side of a pole, I went on the other side of the pole and the leash got caught in the middle throwing me um, horizontal. I hit my uh, leg on a brick wall and I didn't know it at the time but displaced my patella, um, my kneecap. Limped home with the dog, got home, dad kind of looked at me and was like, you're fine, just start, you know, ice it and you'll get better type of deal. And about two hours later, when it swelled up to the size of a balloon, then Dad kind of changed his story, and we decided to go to the emergency room. And um, leg got a lot better, but after that, then the doctors started saying that, you know, I there was very little sports that they were excited about me doing. Mm. And the one that I basically could talk them into was um, long-distance running. And so... I was able to, uh, in middle school, start training for stuff like a one-mile race. And I eventually, um, in eighth grade, started getting into stuff like, for example, a half-mile race. And I, uh, I have ultimately ended up getting my best half-mile time of 2.04, which is just over a four-minute mile for a half-mile um, never could break that threshold of a four-minute mile for a half-mile time frame, but uh, um, I-, I really enjoyed running. So The part that I find just a little confusing is, so you bashed your knee against a cement wall or a brick wall, and so then people thought more running was the sport <laughs> for you, and all other sports were out. Can you clarify that? Something like, for example hurdles or something like that sprinting then it would have been too hard too much banging on my knee and that kind of a thing or if I would have wanted to do shot put which looking back right now I would have made a terrible shot put thrower but um, if I wanted to it would have been too much twisting think about like for example basketball or something like that where you know you're constantly changing direction changing motion okay and so running with 
a long distance rather than a um, rather than a sprint component to it, then it's straight forward, straight back, and so it's not going to have nearly the lateral direction on my knee that uh, that some of the other sports might have. So basically, anything with twisting was essentially out. Correct. And you just had so many marathons in your life, and so many triathlons, swim, bike, run, and I think two full Ironman. Correct. And then a bunch of half Ironmans, too, which those take like five hours and 45 minutes of your body being in constant motion. Yep. So all, all that's fine. Just no basketball, no football, no kickball, no wrestling. Well, and that was at the time, because eventually then that injury healed, and, uh, and I could start to play those sports later on in life, but um, at that point, I had already become a runner, and so that was kind of why I stuck with. Okay, so then, I guess continue the story of your secret origin story. <laughs> what was your athletic career and your life like in high school and college? So, it was freshman orientation, and this guy walks up to me, and he looks at me real quick, and he says, You're a swimmer! And I said, No, you don't want me for a swimmer. Like, I, I don't even know how to swim. Well, he's looking at me, big long arms, big hands, tall, lean. Um, and, and to him, he's like, I can train somebody, but I can't get the body type that I want if I don't have it to begin with, you know. And then you, you're more likely to succeed in his mind if you have you know, the body to begin with, and then he can train as a coach into the point where, well, as it turned out in high school, I wanted to do track, I wanted to do cross country, which are at the bookends of the year. I didn't have anything during the winter to help keep me in shape. Okay. And so swimming seemed like a good alternative and uh, went out for swimming in high school and I really enjoyed it. Um, I ended up shaving my head, not only that year, but... Uh, but all the years subsequent to that in high school, it's kind of funny because when you look back at my high school pictures, you can literally tell what time of year it is by the length of my hair. <laughs> well, and see, as long as I've known you, you've had this dark, long, curly hair. And even when you did the Iron Man, I'm just trying to remember, I, I don't remember you getting much of a haircut for that. And I've always liked to have a little bit longer hair. I've never liked like a really, really tight cut haircut. And this is part of the reason why is because in swimming, then I would, I, I just, I never got my haircut. You could so. have shaved half an hour off of your got <laughs> a haircut, man. That's funny. You know, it's these little sacrifices you have to be right, willing right. to make for crying. But out. honestly, I don't even remember for sure. I think it was about the length that it is right now, which is, you know, uh, three quarters of an inch or so around. But Okay. Um, okay. Yeah. Well, backing up to the secret origin story. So what was the very first race? When I was in college, um, I never competed in college sports, mostly because I just wasn't good enough. Um, and... Uh, I was on an internship, and one of the project managers at our company signed up for a triathlon, and he wasn't able to do it. And he asked me at the time, now in this day and age with the whole online everything and whatnot, you could never do this, but at that time, then you could fairly easily transfer a race sign up from one person to another. So he asked me if I wanted to do it, and he said, basically, I probably put the money into it. You can have it for free. And I was excited about the idea because, obviously, swimming and running, but this bike deal, I hadn't biked since I was a kid. And I knew how to ride a bike, 
But that was about the extent of it. So I called up my mom and dad, and we talked about it, and uh, three of us went out and we bought a bike. But the issue was that all the bikes that we had were all one-speed bike. I didn't have a bike with gears on it. So uh, mom and dad were teasing me about it that, uh, yeah, we got you the bike, and then we had to teach you how to use it because you had no idea how to switch gears on a bike or what different gears did and uh, all of that kind of a thing. So, so maybe first or top ten in the running component and the swimming component <laughs> is dead last in the biking component. Well, and the other piece of... Uh, Piece of triathlons, and looking back on it now, I think it's hilarious, but um, transition is a big part of triathlons. And if you can get fast in transition, you can pick up a lot of time and you can cut down your overall time. Okay, so what's a transition for people who don't know? Right, so you have the swim, you get out of the water, you go into a transitional area, which is basically where your bike and your running stuff is stored, and then you switch into your biking stuff, and then you go out on your bike. The quicker all of that is included in your total time. And so the quicker that you can get ready for your bike ride, the quicker that your overall race time is going to be. And uh, looking back on it now, I think I spent like seven minutes or something like that. I looked it up the other day on my race log. Is that fast or is that slow? That's pretty slow. <laughs> okay, but you came in first. What were the other people doing in transit? Well, this was um, this was my first oh, race. First race. First back race. in uh, okay. Back at Pigman Sprint Triathlon in Iowa. Um, <laughs> so seven minutes, and maybe you'd never practiced transition right. before. I hadn't. You know, I was sitting there and trying to get things arranged and coordinated, and I just, I, I didn't even think about the idea of practicing to transition or how to set things up right. And obviously, I learned a lot in the process of doing races over years. But well, how, how fast did the transition become then for you? If seven minutes was the slow point, what was the fastest transition? And it varies by race, depending on how it's set up and where it is and all of that kind of thing. But two, three minutes sometimes. Two, three minutes. I mean, depending on, you know, you drop off your bike, you throw on this, you throw on that, and you go out. And the other thing is, back then, I, you know, had to get changed out of this, and then you start getting suits that you can swim and bike and run in, and it's all designed for, and so that tends to save a lot of time, not having to put on a shirt when you're all wet and everything like that. And, oh, um, yeah. Yeah. I mean, the gear components of all of this can be quite Huge. expensive. Big I mean, deal. special suits for swimming, uh, special bikes for biking, and I, I guess special shoes for running at the end of things. Absolutely. And even, like, the componentry on your bike. Um, now, my bike that I race with has aero bars so that I can come down into a tuck position, and it's much more aerodynamic and all of that kind of a thing. Um specialty wheels, clips. Um, my first bike I couldn't even clip into. Looking back on it, that seems weird now, but uh, but that's kind of the way that it was back then. It was my first race, and I didn't know all of these extra things that you do in a race. And, um, I, you know, but you have to start somewhere, and I think that that's one thing that I would really push to people is that, you know, even if your first race goes terrible and your time is terrible, Looking back, you know, I think that for a sprint triathlon, I was just under two hours. It was like an hour and 56 minutes or something okay. like that. Okay. Which, at near the end of my career, um, 
I uh, I probably ended up doing an hour and fifteen minutes. Type you of shaved forty five minutes. You you took a two hour sub two hour and you turned that into an hour fifteen. Yeah. Holy cow! I I think we're gonna get into maybe some training methods a little bit later, <laughs> but that's just astonishing. I'm trying to do the math in my head. You basically cut off three eighths of your time off of things. I can't even imagine that's just mind-blowing to me that you did that thanks <laughs> that's just really really incredible um but yeah. it's a starting point and everybody has a starting point and when you go out and you do that first race um it, it doesn't matter how fast or slow it is as long as you get off the course before they start picking up the guns <laughs> and they kick you off and they say okay you, you, you you've done good but you can't keep going and as long as you get off the course before that happens you're good um yeah <laughs> so although i do know one person who finished um a, a race uh after the cone people the cone people came along and picked up all the cones and and everybody congratulated her. I mean, it was her well, first race, and she told the story in a very funny so way. So see you Yeah, so I guess yeah. even if the cone people are, are <laughs> there and gone, then I just guess that's what it is. So, okay, so you absolutely loved that first race. What did it lead to? Two weeks later, <laughs> like right away I got home, and I signed up for Quad Cities Triathlon, um, and uh, just got hooked, wanted to keep doing them, wanted to uh, keep racing. And for me, I really love, you know, I've loved running for a long time. I enjoy swimming a lot. The biking was kind of something new for me and something different. And I've always said that I love having all three together. For me, having something different to do on different days and, you know, then doing brick workouts, which I'll talk about probably a little bit later okay. here. Um, that's really kind of an interesting different component and just the versatility of triathlons. Um, if it's raining out, um, no big deal. I can go into a pool and I can do a swim. If it's a beautiful day out, well, let's go out and let's do a, you know, big long bike ride and, you know, start training that way. And so it, 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 no matter how you feel, no matter where you're at, you can always do something to, uh, to get ready for a triathlon. You can really avoid burnout that way. I, I ran a lot of marathons and uh, people, just every other marathoner I knew basically got burnout at a certain point. And I guess who can blame them? Because I yeah, reached I a certain that. point where after about 11 years of running marathons, I guess I, I hit a burnout and then didn't run for maybe two and a half years. And now I'm just doing my little three miles a day. And I feel pretty good about that. But right. I, I could just really see what you're doing would allow you to avoid burnout as well. See, now, I've never gotten burnt out, as you phrased it. Um, I've always wanted to continue doing more races and, you know, maybe after a big, long full Ironman, then maybe I'll step back and do some sprints for a while or something like that, or you know, have a full marathon on the horizon or something like that, but I've never wanted to not race, so I just, I've never had that experience. Okay. That's interesting. Yeah, well, um, I think people who are burnout really should just switch it up. Uh, I, I knew runners who had quit running and then they just wouldn't do anything. And then a year later, they were just really not in good physical shape. And I, I just think the key is, well, start doing P90X or something or join a CrossFit gym 
or take up tennis or take up volleyball or take up golf or uh, just something other than 12 ounce curls with Miller Lite. Um, I just think some form of exercise, just a difference, just shake it up, just shake it up. That's yeah. just my kind of take on things. But um, I remember you telling me at a certain point that some doctors told you that, well, if you're lucky, maybe someday you'll be able to run a mile. This was after an injury. Uh, and then since they told you this, you've completed two Ironman and a bazillion other races. Can you go back to that story of the doctor who told you, well, if you're lucky, maybe someday you'll run a mile? And it was even worse than that. It was the doctor who told me that he didn't think that I'd be able to run long-term type of deal. Um, and the year was 2005 when I was in college that I had um, knee surgery, something completely different than when I was in middle school, but um, had an ACL surgery. And I didn't know it at the time, but I had a lot of scar tissue that had built up. Mm. Um, had a doctor that looked at it that, looking back, I just don't think he understood my knee that well at that time. And, um, and his professional opinion was that I basically wouldn't be able to run long term. Um, and I remember that night getting home with my parents and feeling so angry about the whole thing. And I, I put on my running shoes, I went out, and I sprinted a mile as fast <laughs> as I could. Just it, it became a matter of you have a choice between staying angry or breathing. And at the time, then, I just I had so much pent up everything. And um, I played around with trying to find some other specialists. I ended up finding a chiropractor here in Kansas City that I went to. And... He recognized the fact that I had a lot of built-up scar tissue from uh -huh. the surgery, and um, he used various different methods to eliminate that. It never got quite perfect, and we worked with a lot. I remember going to him for trying to change around the insole of my foot, trying to change the dynamics of how I step and that kind of a thing, and we never quite tweaked that perfect, but it got to the point where I could exercise again, I could go out and I could train again, and today, I, I'll have a problem with it every once in a while, but it, it's not that often. It doesn't definitely doesn't impact me regularly type of deal. Did you run into a doctor who was just simply a miracle worker? Because if they told you in 2005, no, hey, look, you're done. Uh, one mile is, is ridiculous. And then that evening, you go out and run a mile. I guess my first question about that was, did you feel like... I am really doing something I shouldn't right now. I am sneaking something. I'm like a bad teenager. I, I'm, I'm abusing my body. What were your thoughts when you went out and sprinted that mile? I've always had a theory in life, and we've all heard the saying, if at first you don't succeed, try, try again. I've kind of switched that up in my mind. If at first you don't succeed, stop to figure out what you're doing wrong first, okay. and then try again. Try a different approach. Try something new. Try, you know, a, a different way of looking at the problem. Um, to Stephen Covey's point from Seven Habits of Highly Effective People, you know, change your paradigm. 
Yeah. And, um, and so that's what I did was I said, okay, if modern medicine isn't going to help me with this, maybe I try something that's a little bit different. And that's when I started looking at a chiropractor. I don't think he was a miracle worker. I do think they tried something that was different than what a quote unquote normal MD would do. And it, for my particular situation, then it helped. Um, I'm not saying it's going to help everybody. I'm not saying that a chiropractor is the right answer for everybody. But I am saying that for me at that particular moment with the problem that I had, it worked really well. Absolutely. Well, it's, it's just very traditional in medicine in the first place. I've got two cousins who are doctors and an aunt who is a cardiologist. Uh, if you don't like the opinion you get, get a second opinion. Right. Uh, sooner or later, people have to bow down to reality and accept reality. But... I don't know, just the evidence seems to say that the first doctor was mistaken or just didn't know enough to help you. Yep. Uh, I'm sure he's a good man and a good doctor, but no person can know everything. So. And that's kind of how I felt. Like, I, I just, I needed to at least, like you say, get a second opinion and look into it. And sometimes in reality is what it is, but at the same time, I wasn't ready to accept that at that time. I kind of like it. Uh, if at first you don't succeed, try something different. Is kind of what you seem to have said. Yeah. Okay, okay. Uh, so they were wrong, and you kept going, and then the Iron Man. What made you, I don't know, even just realize there was such a thing as an Iron Man? I don't know where I was when I grew up, but I think you were the first person who mentioned to me that I'm doing an Iron Man. And I said, what's an <laughs> Iron Man? And then you explained it to me, and I, I was just... Stunned, 140.6 miles of sheer madness. <laughs> Your body is in constant motion. You were in first place, and that was 11 hours and 43 minutes. So I, I'm assuming a lot of people finish that Ironman in maybe 13 hours or 14 hours, and we're probably very excited, very proud. Oh, very and, much. And, and I would be. I mean, if I finished an Ironman in 17 hours, I would have been ecstatic. And just to clarify for everyone... Um, I took first place in my age group. I think I took like eighth overall. Um, and uh, the people who faced, you know, I mean, they faced several hours ahead of me type of a deal. Um, so just want to clarify that for everybody listening because it, it, 11 hours and, you know, change like I did is a good time. But it's not earth-shattering in the triathlon world, so gotcha. Clarify. Gotcha. So I, there's other Ironmen out there who are maybe yelling at me for <laughs> gushing over you right now. What are you talking about? I did an Ironman in nine hours, and yeah. what is the world record? Do you know? I don't. I believe, if I had to make a guess, it's somewhere in the six to seven hour range. What? But I don't know for sure. Okay, and it's held by Clark Kent or <laughs> something like that. Yeah, exactly. Okay. Okay, that's just amazing. So wow. Okay, so how did you I guess first hear of the Iron Man or decide I want to do an Iron Man? So I got into a group called Tri KC, which is the local triathlon club of Kansas City. And um I figured out that there was an Ironman Kansas race, which was a, what's called a 70.3, which is a half Ironman, which is kind of funny because I, um, I knew a coach once 
who said, if you finish a 70.3 race, 70.3 miles, you're not half of anything. <laughs> I still think that's kind of funny and kind of true. But um, No kidding. 70.3 miles. This is just flabbergasting yeah. to me. But um, And so that's when I started looking into, oh, well, there's the next step up, and that's 140.6. And I, I don't even know. Like, I think it was after... I started doing a couple of halves and then I started looking at and I started thinking about could I even possibly mm. do a full? Is it within the realm of possibility? And um, so for me, the way that I planned out, the way that I thought about it was if I can run a full marathon, which at the time I had never run a full marathon, then I start looking at, well, what's the next logical step beyond that? What's the next logical step beyond that? Okay. Um, okay. So baby steps. I guess first we crawl, then we cruise, then we walk, then we run, and then we run, bike, swim, and <laughs> just, just kind of like one step at a time, basically, is what you did. Right. So, was, but, but it was in the back of your mind. Gosh, I would like to do this. So I, I guess... Something that just comes to my mind is, you must have really just loved this. I did. I did, Tim. I love that runner's high. I love the accomplishment. I love a finish line of getting done and knowing that you've put everything into that day of accomplishing as much as you can. Um, I love the post-race food and how good it tastes when you're so <laughs> worn out. Um, I love wearing the t-shirt for a rest of the day and getting the medal and feeling like you're king of the world and everything. And it, it just, it's amazing. It's fantastic. There's a lot of ecstasy in all of this, which I think it's just hard to explain to other people. But I, I just never cared about shoes at all in my life. Uh, I just, I'd hear about other people really love shoes. Uh, especially women would really love shoes. And I would think, well, I, okay, that's nice. I, I don't get it, and I didn't spend any time thinking about it. Then I would get a new pair of running shoes when I was running, no. and I just would look at the shoes. I'd be at home sitting on my couch, uh, maybe reading a book, glance up, see the shoes in the corner, and they would make me indescribably happy. Yeah. So all, all I guess I can say is that Maybe it's a form of delirium or craziness <laughs> or detachment from reality. I don't know what it is, but and you're right about the food afterwards. So just you've never had a better tasting banana or orange in your life after you finish. I, I mean, I didn't do an Ironman. I just did marathons and half marathons. But just, just yeah, just everything about this was just the race day party afterward. Tell me if you felt this way. Whenever I finished a marathon, I felt like the world can begin anew. I have a new lease on life. Anything is possible. Uh, if I work hard enough, then I can I can achieve anything. Or even if I can't achieve it, I can certainly enjoy trying to achieve it. Mm -hmm. That's how I always felt at the end of every marathon. Well, I haven't thought about it that light, but I like that. Okay. Okay. Just yeah. that, just amazing, amazing glow. Well, let's kind of get into training for this. Um, how did you train for the Ironman? So... As I said earlier, my view, I had a three-step process in my mind. And to me, the first thing is, I can't do an Ironman if I can't do a marathon. It, it just It's a piece of the puzzle. And so if you can't do a marathon in the first place, you're kind of done. And I have a friend out in California um, 
who a uh, great friend from college and I started talking to him about it and he decided he would do the half marathon I would do the full marathon I flew out to California partially because I thought you know oh well this will be great weather and everything like that and I'll get to see my friend and you know and then it poured the entire race <laughs> so like when you say poor I've, I've ran a few races where it sprinkled the whole race no we're talking like a downpour it, it wasn't maybe the whole race the last six eight miles or so was in the it got better but there were times when it was just complete downpour this, this was the first race first race I, I bet that first marathon I bet that felt like it added 10 miles to the whole thing <laughs> yeah and there were times I remember um, man I haven't thought about this in years I remember turning the corner on mile 20 there was a turn at that point in time just logically with the way the race was set up and thinking about the fact that okay I've gotten to where I need to be I'm in the position where I can finish and I can do this I paced those first 20 miles and then that's when I started really picking up speed okay. and trying to run faster and okay. everything like that so well I want to ask uh, people will say the marathon is two halves long because basically most people are starting to run out of gas around mile 20 probably because most of us are burning carbs and no matter who you are no matter how much you try to fuel in the middle of the race you are pretty much going to be out of carbs even if you're eating all kinds of carbs during the race your, your body is just an inferno just burning up calories uh, so then that second half of the marathon is the last six miles and that is when people are in excruciating pain uh, yeah. did you experience that or did you not just for that race okay. other races <laughs> especially you can think of a couple I'm sure um, I have but during that race I just really wanted to finish okay and I had the goal of under four hours but if I could finish that was a good thing and so I I really just paced those first 20 miles and I held back a lot. I okay. didn't want to overexert. I didn't want to, you know, I really wanted to just make sure that I finished. And at that point in time, kind of like what we talked about with the first triathlon, it wasn't as much about a time per se. It was more so about just getting to that finish line and giving what I could and that kind of a deal. And so, you know, I started passing people left and right on those last six miles or so. That's an exhilarating feeling, I have to say. Yeah. I mean, okay, every race I ever ran, my attitude was, I don't care if everybody beats me, that's totally fine. I just want to beat myself from the previous race. But I have to say, it's very exhilarating to pass people oh, yeah. in those last six miles. It's just... Yeah terribly exhilarating i have a picture up on the wall upstairs in my house of myself running at the finish line um and i look like a wet dog because i'm completely soaked from all the rain and sweat and everything like that but got a smile on my face and running and all that kind of thing so okay so you completed that first marathon and it was semi underwater and then that was part of your training what was the next phase of your training i kept my running up but the next thing that i really wanted to start focusing on was biking and especially getting up to good distances on the bike and so the way february was when i did the marathon out in 
California, and then in June was when Kansas 70.3 was. I was planning on doing the full Ironman in Chesapeake Bay in September. So okay, left me a goodly amount of time to train up to get ready for that half marathon. But the run aspect and you know a lot of the endurance aspect wasn't nearly as daunting because I had already had a marathon under my belt for the year. And so I had that strength, that confidence, that knowledge that I can at least run a marathon. And so to me, the next logical step is, well, can you do an endurance, a long distance triathlon? Uh-huh. Um, and uh, which was the 70.3, right? Basically, a month, 70.3, just a month after that marathon. Uh, or February to June. Oh, February to June. Sorry, four That's months okay. after that marathon. Yep. Okay. So, so how did you train for that? To me, a lot of this is kind of like what you were talking about earlier: building blocks. You know, I try to do a bike ride of this, and then if that goes well, then you do a bike ride a little longer the next week, and a little longer, and a little longer, and a little longer, and you keep building up and keep trying to get up to that point where you can go the distance of wherever it is in the race. And if I can do the swim that's required, do the run that's required, and do the bike that's required, I'll eventually be able to put all three of them together. Did you ever plateau? People talk about this in the exercise world. Uh, when I very first trained for a marathon, I honestly could not get past 10 or 11 miles. And, and people had to tell me some tricks of the trade. And then after I busted past 10 or 11 miles, then okay. I mean, eventually 26.2. Hallelujah. Did you ever plateau? I remember several times over a course of the years where I go out and maybe the goal is to do 60 miles on the bike or so. And I might make it to mile 30 or 40 and I just, I'm out of gas. Okay. And I can't keep going. I can't, you know, continue for that day. And so you build time into your training program and you just accept the fact that that particular day it didn't work out and sometimes that's very demoralizing Mm. because you set up your social schedule or you set up your family schedule or whatever it is you know you have it planned out so that you have that day available but if your body can't give you what it needs on that day you've just got to back off and try again and I to me that was my plateau was when I was training on the bike and start having problems with and you know that kind of a deal. How how did you get past the plateau? Did you just work harder or did somebody come to you and say look you have to do X, Y, and Z because that's what happened with me. For me it was more so about trying again on a different day. Okay. And It was just accepting maybe last Saturday was not my day. Right. And maybe, you know, it might be because two nights ago then you stayed up late and you shouldn't have. Or maybe it was your meal plans leading up to weren't good or whatever it is. Um, or maybe it just, for whatever reason, it wasn't your day. But for me, backing off, accepting that reality, as we phrased it earlier. Yeah. And then trying again another time and trying, you know, maybe a different strategy or something else. See, this is why people say my dad was a baseball coach for 54 years, I think, and a basketball coach for actually longer than that. He coached when he was 80. This is why people say sports is like life. 
because, you know, maybe Thursday just wasn't your day. You gave it your all on Thursday. Uh, are you going to, going to get demoralized? Are you going to quit? Are you going to surrender? Or are you going to fall into despair? Or are you just going to say, you know, Thursday, I gave it my all. It was not my day. Uh, that was an F. Uh, but tomorrow, tomorrow's a new day. So I, I guess just attitude uh, just really is important in these Absolutely. things. I mean, no, these, I are, these are sports like cliches, but I mean, they just really apply to the rest of life, yeah. I think. So. Um, yeah. so this is maybe like a part-time job, training for one of these things. How many hours a week, uh, if we can even put it that way, does it take to train for something like an Ironman? I was trying to figure that out thinking about this leading into the interview, and I never did come up with a solid number. And looking back on it, I think that for me it wasn't even the number of hours per week because you know it just kind of got built into the rhythm of your day of I get home for work, I go out for a run, it would take an hour, you know, and you can get a good lead running in an hour, you know, I mean, you can get six miles in at 10 minutes per mile, you know, if you're running faster than that, then you can maybe get in fact, you know, more miles than that type of deal. Um, but for me, the hard part from a time standpoint was the long rides, the long runs where, you know, you really have to plan out how am I going to, or what day am I going to rather spend literally all day on the bike and just go out and ride? And that is why I accomplished that day. That is so true. Didn't with the training you do 100 mile bike rides? Yes, that was always my goal was if I can do 100 miles on the bike, I can do 112. It's kind of like the marathon philosophy that you and I have talked about before. Uh, if I can do 20 miles running, I can get 26.2. Maybe I do 22 or 24 miles or so on a training run. But in reality, if I can get to 20 on race day, my body with the acceleration and everything will get me that extra six or so miles. Right. So. There's just so many different training theories, but just sticking to the nuts and bolts. So if you bike for 100 miles on a Saturday, how many hours are you on the bike? When I did my race and I was at Chesapeake Bay, I was just under 20 minutes per mile on the bike. Okay. Which, looking back on it, still blows me away um, that I could go that fast. And that's um, 110 miles? 112 112. Miles. So divided by three, that would be about 37. I, I don't know. I'm just doing my math wrong or something. But that's just a colossal amount of hours. How many hours yeah. does that roughly translate into? Well, if you think about it this way, and in training rides, I was normally... When you, you know, stop, get water, refuel at the truck, you know, that kind of a thing, I probably was averaging about 15. Okay. You know, 15, 30, 60 is 4, 75 is 5, um, you know, you're looking at, for a 100-mile ride, 6 to 7 seven hours hours. type of deal, and so, you know, think about spending an eight-hour day at because you've got to drive there, you've got to get prepped, you've got to, you know, I mean, literally, like I say, all day, all that you're doing is trying to accomplish your bike ride. Right. And and hopefully you're in good enough shape that you're just not shot for the rest of the day. 
Uh, and, and you can't be so depleted that when Monday morning rolls around and you have to get into work that, oh, I'm sorry, I'm still dead. <laughs> I can't put in a good day's work. I am dead. I'm yeah. sure you understand. Yeah. Uh, no, that doesn't fly so well. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, you're right. It is just kind of hard to estimate how much time because to a certain degree, it just takes over your whole imagination right. running because you just are constantly thinking about it and your training is just very, very important and it's not just the time spent running or on the bike, but it's, am I sleeping well, am I eating well, just all of these kind of things. Uh, so let me ask just kind of a lightning round of things. Did you worry about nutrition? How did you handle nutrition? When we were in Tri-KC, I was very, very fortunate, and I wish that I could remember her name, and um, she was actually an amputee, um, and uh, she was a professional triathlete, and she gave me a great piece of advice about nutrition okay. and Ironman racing, and it goes something like this. On race day, for a full Ironman, there is no more physical component. It, the physical component is all wrapped up in the fact that you've done your training, you've put in your time, and your body is ready. There's basically two components that go into it, and one of which is going to be your mental toughness of, you know, on that day, can I keep going, and that kind of a deal. But then the second one is the nutritional mm. aspect of it. And so not only is there the whole eating it well as you build up to a race and eating healthy and all that kind of a thing, but on race day, for a full Ironman, you burn the calories that a normal person burns in a week. That's probably right. And it's insane to think about it that way, but that's absolutely true. And so, um, you know, I mean, you're just constantly trying to refuel your body, constantly trying to eat during the race. Um, and, uh, and having a good strategy for, strategy for that and what your body can do and what it can take in and what it's going to absorb. And that's going to be different from person to person. And some people can eat this. And for some people, if you eat that, then it's going to make you immediately throw up and it's just not going to work well and all of that kind of a deal because your stomach bouncing with that something on your stomach and all of that kind of thing. Do you remember what you ate during the Ironman? Pretty well, yeah. Um, for me, I'm very, very fortunate that I was able to do a combination of, first off, water is absolutely critical. You right. have to drink water constantly. Right. And then I was able to do a lot of goo packs for much of my nutrition. Okay. And so... I, and then Gatorade, and I know a lot of people can't do this. My body at the time at least could. I haven't tried it in years. But um, uh, my stomach could handle goo packs as well as Gatorade at the same time. And so I had a system set up where every number of miles, then no matter what, I take a drink. Might have been like every 10 minutes or something like that. Then I take a drink of water and you force yourself to drink whether you want to or not. And then every so many miles, maybe it's like every five miles on the bike or so, something along those lines, then you take a goo pack. And then every 10 miles, then you eat a bar or something like that. And I, I, I had it all worked out at the time. I don't remember exactly the plan anymore, but it was that kind of a philosophy of you 
force yourself to make sure that you continually are getting nutrition because during that long of a race, if you're not continually taking in calories, your body just isn't going to make it. Okay. So, and, and this stuff gets very scientific and people really do map this stuff out calorie by calorie. And there's online drink calculators that tell you exactly how much water you should consume. And, you know, there are people with opposing philosophies. There are people out there who just hate any sort of race sugar, unnatural sugar, so they're not going to be doing goo packs or Gatorades. Instead, they're going to be eating bananas and oranges and things like that. But, but all that aside, just without getting into the endless nutritional controversies, let me just ask a big general question about nutrition. So in the 10 weeks leading up to the race, there were some runners I know who basically said, look, I can eat whatever I want because I'm a runner. So if I want to treat myself like a human garbage disposal, <laughs> uh, my body is Chernobyl, uh, I'm like a goat eating out of a dumpster. They were perfectly cool with that. They just basically took the attitude that a calorie is a calorie, whether it comes from a steak or whether it comes from a cellophane wrapper. As long as it was a calorie, they were cool with that. And then there were other people who just thought those people were out of their mind that source of calories really matters. And so just it's just astounding to me how many people in the marathon world were just in both camps and yeah. you would think that it would just be yeah. very heavily lopsided toward one camp where did you stand on on source of calories i'm going to answer your question in a way that you might not expect <laughs> but, okay um i was very much of the opinion that i could eat practically wherever i wanted to but the difference for me is I just naturally, my own taste, uh, I have a savory tooth rather than a sweet tooth. Okay. So, you know, my kids especially right now, Daddy, can we have dessert? And it, it, it's very much like, oh, yes, you can have dessert. And I'm sitting there in the back of my mind thinking, wouldn't it be better to eat a little bit more of this chicken marsala or whatever it is that we had for supper or a steak or something like that? Because that's what I have a hunger for naturally. Okay. And so... Even though I allowed myself to eat wherever I wanted to, most of the time I wasn't eating dessert foods and sweets and that kind of a thing, stuff that just naturally isn't as good for you. And I was wanting to eat food that is better for you. So I think that I was able to get away with that mentality of eating wherever I wanted to because I tend to just want to eat naturally healthy anyway. You had the best of all <laughs> just naturally crave healthy food versus like, oh, hey, here's a Twinkie and a little Debbie snack cake. And after you eat 50 little Debbies, then you get the big Deborah snack so, cake. That is sad. Okay, so enough on nutrition. What about strength training? Uh, were you much of a believer in strength training, or are we just going to do the lower body? What are we going to do? I really wasn't. I did some push-ups. Um, I did some uh, some core work every once in a while. Um, but for by and large, I have never really gotten into strength training. Maybe a little bit back when I was in swimming in high school, because that was our coach's philosophy, was that you should do some strength training. I have an utter respect for that idea. It just wasn't what I did, and it wasn't my philosophy in leading up to my Ironman. I wanted to really get myself ready. And Coach Bouton, God bless him, um, 
greatest coach ever as far as I'm concerned. He was my, uh, my high school cross-country and track coach. Um, he's since passed away, but he was a great coach. And his theory was that you basically need enough strength and enough endurance in your arms mm. to keep your arms moving and to keep, help you keep pace with your legs. But beyond that, any kind of bulk strength is just going to weigh you down and it's more muscle mass that you have to carry around with you. And so that's kind of the same philosophy that I've carried with me. And I'm lucky in so much that I can't swim super fast, but I can swim practically forever. And I've never really struggled with um, long distance swims. It was just something that kind of came naturally to me more so than anything. So. I guess you'd fall into the category of functional new functional uh, fitness just in the sense that, well, if you need to swim 2.4 miles, then you're going to have to have the proper arm strength to swim 2.4 miles. And if you're going to bike for 110, 112 miles, well, you have to grip the handlebars and handle your upper body, keeping it balanced and coordinated and such when you're on the bike. So I guess functional fitness the entire way. I think that that's probably a good summary of it. Okay, okay. Um, sleep. What Did you have a philosophy of sleep? <sighs> Looking back, I don't think that I really like got that wrapped up into it. And every once in a while, then for me, that would be a guilty pleasure of, you know, going out to a party on a Saturday night or something like that, you know, and staying up later than I probably should have looking back on it. And during the week, I normally would get good sleep um, every once in a while that I'd have, you know, those kind of moments. But I don't remember myself getting wrapped up in, I don't think I really ever have um, you know, oh my gosh, I didn't get eight hours, I got six hours, or I got seven hours, and now I'm not as ready. I think that probably some of my training reflected that, mm -hmm. because like I say, you know, maybe it was that some of those plateaus were as a result of, you know, not getting the proper amount of sleep two nights before, or something like that. But in general... I just I've never gotten that that wrapped up into exact times. I think that's good for you. It's just not why I did at the time. Well, and it's interesting to me. I've spoken with a lot of people about sleep, and some people definitely need their seven hours or they need their eight hours. But I've known a few other people who just consistently seem like they can get by in five or six. And you just seem to be mostly oblivious to the question of how much sleep you <laughs> needed. But to be fair, I, I think I've known you maybe 14 years, and I have just never seen you tired. You just always seem like you are energetic and ready to go, and uh, I'm sure that that's not entirely true, but you've got me fooled. <laughs> so maybe you're just naturally energetic, and well, hey, let's just go run 20 miles. It's fine. It's possible. It's going to be absolutely fine. Uh, I guess two other kind of quick questions just about the overall fitness component. Uh, injuries. When a person gets injured, how do you bounce back? It was about two weeks or so, something like that, before my Chesapeake Man race. And I, um, I was riding on the road and out on Parvin Road near my house. And I was probably doing about 20 miles per hour at the time. I, I was had a good test steam and everything. I had a car that drove up, came around me, cut me off at an intersection. I had to slam on the brakes to keep from uh, 
from hitting into him and uh, still gives me goosebumps thinking about it today um, and uh, I ended up flipping my bike over my front wheel landing on my left shoulder and you can probably see it that there's a bump there where I can't remember the exact name of my bone but basically it permanently got deformed after that um, and I couldn't use my uh, use my right shoulder at all for a time period after that um, and I was freaking out because I'm like you know the trip is planned the race is paid for the plane tickets are bought my family is all planning to come and now all of a sudden I don't even know if I'll be able to race or not because I've got this shoulder injury and if I can't do the swim I can't do the race and this was how many weeks before like the race two weeks before see I just feel like this is a gigantic metaphor for life <laughs> for for just anything that a person really wants to accomplish this is the uh, person who is going to get married and two weeks before she gets married or he gets married they suddenly wonder is this the right decision or it's the person who is aiming for the perfect job and uh, when they go into the interview 20 minutes before the interview somebody spills tomato sauce down the front of their shirt and they have to somehow cope with this situation and still get the job it's yeah. the perfect job they have to get it i just feel like this is because hey, i was injured mildly before my first marathon roughly about two weeks ahead of time well wow. and uh, yeah and it just so i'm just kind of wondering i don't know maybe this is the way the the world or god or or however maybe this is just how life is is that they just want to see if you're serious are you really yes. serious about <laughs> doing this race here all right we're just going to start like chucking things at you and if you dodge them or, like, you take a few dents, then, uh, you know, just how serious are you? I, yes. I'm wondering if that's... I'm sorry. I guess I, I went off on a philosophical no, tangent. How did you recover? I tried all kinds of different things. I tried different nutrient supplements that were supposed to aid in healing. Um, looking back on it now, I doubt that it probably did any good. But, you know, I, I, I was desperate to try something. Um, I think one thing that did help, I tried some of the, I'm going to pronounce it poorly, I should have okay. looked out beforehand, but some of the kinesium tape okay. um, around my shoulder to pull in different muscles. Um, I had seen in the Olympics in 2008, which was, that was the year that I did the race, and that was a big inspiration for me building up into my Ironman. Um, and I just rested it for those two weeks beforehand leading mm. up to, and I didn't swim a single stroke until I got in the water in Chesapeake Bay on the morning of, and I didn't know if my entire race was going to be over before you even started or not. You you jumped in the water on that day, and you didn't know if this was going to be a, uh, instead of 140.6 mile, if this was going to be maybe 140.6 inch Yards. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> right. Yes, you've so, got it. So what was it like when you got in? It was kind of terrifying, but I, I felt energized. I felt excited, and my arm felt good. My shoulder felt good, and I, I just... The whole morning of and getting to Chesapeake Bay, it's a beautiful area. We stayed in a bed and breakfast nearby the race site, um, 
And uh, the morning of, I got up, I felt excited, I felt refreshed. And, you know, getting in the water, I felt like I was excited and ready to do it. It was just the question of, will my shoulder hold up or not? And after you swam, I don't know, 10 yards, 100 yards, how did you feel? I knew that it was going to hold up. I could just feel that everything was right. And I, at that point, then it started just becoming a matter of what I need to do to move on past the swim because I knew that the injury wasn't going to hold me back. But anymore. you had a bone out of place. It's still <laughs> out of place. How does it, it's like you're using somebody else's body. How does this even work? Or not, it, it, it's largely just the visual aesthetics aspect of it. Okay. Um, this particular bone in your shoulder, again, I should know the name of it, but it's been so many years since I thought about it. Um, apparently, when you have this particular injury, then that's the way that it looks afterwards. And okay. It, okay. Okay, so it's just slightly out of place, and that's that. <laughs> yep, you got okay. it. Okay, and, and uh, any desire to, I don't know, go to a somebody who can pop it back in where it's supposed to go? No. Okay, no. so it's, it hasn't impacted your quality of life one whit. You wouldn't be able to tell unless you knew, um, uh, you know, and you looked at me with it, and you're like, oh, yeah, that doesn't quite look right. <laughs> okay, okay. I guess my last question in terms of... Things like nutrition and strength training and things like that is, what about stress in the rest of your life? Um, you know, work stress, romantic stress, financial stress, family stress. Uh, how does that impact your training? You go out to run 10 miles and when everything is, is wonderful, that's one thing. Uh, but if you're on a different day and your world is coming to an end, uh, how does stress impact your training? Looking back on it, I feel like that was the season that I was in, was that uh, what I really wanted to do was this race, and I had a lot of good personal relationships at that time, I had a lot of, I had a very good job that I'm still very grateful that I had at the time, but at the same time, like, you know, it, it you prioritize in life, and I don't feel like the stress ever got to me. I don't feel like it ever was, you know, something that I was worried about or that, you know, got through to me. Um, yeah. What about maybe a different point in, in a person's life? Or if you're going to give some advice to somebody, if somebody said, you know, I'm just too stressed out with finances or romances and I'm just too stressed out to exercise what would you say to this person I think a lot of it depends on how you personally find ways to relax how you personally find ways to cope with something um, there are many people out there who are introverts I'm not I'm a big time extrovert I love to be around people I love to do things with people but you know, for a lot of people out there who are introverts, my wife being one of them, um, you know, she gets energy from being by herself and reading a book and then she's able to come back and face me and the kids and deal with the problems of life. Um, for me, I feel like it's more so 
the idea of doing things and being energetic and leading this and, you know, finding ways to make fun, new, cool, amazing things happen is what makes me energized. And so, you know, maybe that's part of the reason why the stress has never been an issue to me is because I've always done those fun, cool, exciting things that I've wanted to do. Okay. So I, I guess if you're stressed out all the time, find something that's going to charge you up and yes. go do that thing. And I, I noticed you mentioned healthy things with that. That's very important to me. You mentioned get some exercise, read a book, spend some quality time with people, things along those lines. You didn't mention anything that's harmful to your body, for example, as a stress reliever. And that's what I think some people mistakenly do is right. they that's go out there and they find the thing that's harmful to them or which something that maybe in small doses would be fine, but in large doses is loaded with toxins and thus, I guess, can depress you the next day to make your thing worse. Yeah. So, so I, I think positive forms of stress relief. Well, I'd like to kind of get into the critics a little bit. Uh, the critics of the Ironman, the critics of the marathon, uh, because I certainly ran into them when I ran marathons. Uh, so I, just the ultimate criticism I think I've heard is, you are crazy. 140.6 miles. We don't need to psychoanalyze you. You are crazy. <laughs> what do you respond to the people who say that you're just a lunatic? I think in some ways I kind of am a little bit crazy too. <laughs> to be perfectly honest, um, you don't set out on a 140.6 mile journey relying only upon nothing but your own endurance and not go a little bit, be a little bit crazy. But I've always had the philosophy of, and um, John chapter 6, verse 6, um, I come that they may have life and that they may live it to the fullest. Hmm. And that has always been my favorite Bible verse. And I really, really believe that that is the core to me of what I love about Jesus Christ is that he came that we may have life, that we may live life to the fullest. And whether that's an Iron Man or whether that's being a friend or whether that's raising children or um, being in a marriage or whatever it is, trying to live that life to the fullest and drink as much as you can of the goodness of life. And that's what I really excite, get excited about. That's why I really appreciate and. Um, if that means that I'm a little bit crazy because I like to take things to that kind of extreme, I'll take that label. Okay, okay. And you certainly have always been a man who has given things his all, and we'll kind of get into that in other areas of life in maybe just a little bit. Uh, now, some of the other critics I've heard say, you know, life on the couch is just much better. It, your body is going to decay anyway. In 100 years, you are going to be dead. So why not just Netflix, bag of chips, floppy pillow, thoughts? And to that I think I might respond, you don't know what you're missing. And you know, for me at that time, in that season of my life, that runner's high, um, the confidence, the accomplishment, and you know, looking back on it, and I and we might get into this later on too, but you know. The confidence that you get from running a full Ironman, you feel like you can do anything. And mm -hmm. it, 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 it's something that you can always look back upon 
in your life that, well, you know what, I know that I can do whatever it is that I'm faced up against now. I ran a 140.6 mile marathon, or excuse me, triathlon, you know, and I knew, I know that I can do whatever it is that I'm faced up against. And, you know, the other thing, if it's just Netflix and, you know, where are you growing? Where are you accomplishing something? Or where are you helping someone else to grow? You know, now... Mm helping my kids and seeing them grow and seeing them make accomplishments and make good choices in life, you know, that gives me so much energy and so much excitement that I can't even begin to express. So, you know, what are you accomplishing by what you're doing? And that, that would be my kind of answer. And you can always look back on that Iron Man and say, they can't take that away from me. Yeah. I absolutely did it. And now I can be confidence and I can be generous and just all of these things. Uh, a final objection I'd like to raise from some of the critics does not come from the couch people. It comes from the hardcore exercise people. I've heard some people say we would just simply all be better off if we did something like CrossFit or P90X. The idea basically is that you could develop the 10 CrossFit skills. Other people might break this down in a different way, but this these are the CrossFit skills. They say things like respiratory endurance, stamina, strength, flexibility, power, speed, coordination, agility, balance, and accuracy. So then people might criticize and say, well, look, it's great that running builds speed, endurance, and stamina, and possibly balance, so that's four out of 10, but it doesn't do much for strength, power, coordination, and accuracy, and it can make you tragically not flexible. A lot of runners are notoriously stiff. And so what would be your answer to the comprehensive fitness people? I think for me, in reflecting about this, it boils down to a question of what is important to you. And I, for me, I really like that, being able to go after that goal and, you know, maybe some of the other stuff that might be good in some other sports or something like that. It's just not what's important to me. Um, and uh, I think that you can stay flexible if you work at it, but it is something that you do need to work at. Um, and uh, if you stay focused on continuing to try to stretch at the end of every workout, if you stay focused on trying to do the work that you need to, um, then I think that you can. Um, I can't speak for all runners. I can't speak for, but you know, I know that I've tried to stretch regularly after races and uh, and training runs, and um, that's kind of what's I've done and what's worked for me. Okay, so we just have to kind of take a nod at some of the ten CrossFit skills, for example, flexibility, and just compensate for that. Yeah. Uh, I, I guess a lot of runners really get into stretching or advanced stretching. Uh, a lot of people do yoga. Uh, in order to keep going. Um, so, so yeah, there could be a balance in all these things. Okay, uh, let's talk a little bit about philosophies. Uh, when I was doing marathons, there was just a belief in the long-distance communities that suffering is good. And it was so contrary to what the rest of the culture was saying, at least that's how we thought of things. We thought the rest of the culture wants comfort, but we really don't want comfort. Sometimes the more painful, the better. <laughs> 
People would refer to some people as a broken glass athlete. That guy would crawl across broken glass naked if that's what it took to get things done. Uh, just what was your philosophy on suffering? For me, I remember writing this after, uh, after I did my first marathon in preparation for my full Ironman. I oftentimes will tie the suffering that I'm experiencing to the mysteries of the rosary and try to use it to unite myself to my faith, unite myself to Christ, unite myself with Mary. And, you know, oftentimes during the last few miles of a marathon, I'm praying the sorrowful mysteries thinking about Jesus and how hard it was for him to walk and trying to unite myself with that. And so for me, I think that when you can combine the faith aspect with the physical aspect and use it to bring body, soul, and everything together, that that's really where the suffering aspect can become very powerful. Suffering can have a transformative, a positively transformative effect on your life. That's, that's part of what I'm hearing. I would agree with that. Well, were you looking for a spiritual transformation or perhaps a personal transformation or maybe both? Yes, I believe that we always need to be open to where God is leading us. He is the Father, we are the sons, just like I am trying to guide my son, and he might not understand where he's going, but he's open to listening to me, then I need to be open to listening to my Heavenly Father, and maybe I don't know what that final destination is, but at the same time I need to recognize that he is more knowledgeable, more wise than I am, I need to be open to taking that journey. Let, let's broaden this to the wider either marathon or triathlon community just a little bit. I remember seeing a poll when I was doing my 10 years worth of marathons that um, I, I think this was from Newsweek. I'm just not quite sure. But they had surveyed, I think, something like 100 people who had signed up for marathons, maybe a larger group. 100 is probably not statistically accurate. Right. So, so I bet they did a better job than that. Uh, and what they found out was 75% of the people who signed up for a big race, like a half marathon or a marathon or a triathlon, never even finished. They all dropped out uh, before the training was over, so they never ever got to race day in the first place. They dropped out in the middle of the training. Only 25% actually succeeded in completing the race, and then they did kind of a follow-up survey of these people and what they found out was 25% uh, the ones that were successful were looking. They were looking for a personal or spiritual transformation in their life. That was the thing that they were shooting for. They wanted to renew themselves. They wanted to become either a much better person or a different person. And then they surveyed the other 75%, the dropouts, and they had one of two primary motives. And, and personally, I can see where these would not be very inspiring. One of their motives was to lose weight. So that was their motive. I'm going to go running so that I can lose weight. Of course, every time I went running, then I came home and I just wanted to inhale about 2,000 <laughs> calories. So I don't think the weight loss thing was, was all that helpful from, from that standpoint necessarily. Uh, and then the other motive was they wanted to impress their friends. 
They wanted to impress their friends that, hey, look at me, I'm doing a half marathon or I'm doing a marathon. All I can say is I think some people were mildly impressed when I finished that first marathon. And then when I ran more than 10 marathons, people thought I was barking mad yeah. at that point. So I, in terms of impressing my friends, I think I scared them off. <laughs> Just say, I, how does that seem to you? I guess looking at the larger community... Do you have any kind of a sense of what people are doing this for? Are they just hooked on it because it's fun? Or are they looking for this transformation? Or are they looking for these status markers of weight and friendship bonus points? What's, what's the motive? If, if I mean, we're, we can't speak for everybody, but did you get yeah. kind of a sense well, of the people around you? Part of my problem, I've always kind of some running than like you and I have done together but a lot of my training I've done by myself it's very rare that I would go out and bike with someone else which I think is kind of weird in many ways because I think a lot of people enjoy the community bike rides for me I would try to schedule my long rides around my schedule and try to make it work and do it on my own terms and that kind of a thing so I didn't really have you know my race was has way I did it by myself, you know, and so much that I was the only one from Kansas City that flew out there. And so I didn't get into deep discussions with the other motives. 140.6 athletes about their motives. Yeah. I'm gotcha. sorry, I wish that I had better answer. No, no, it's, it's fair enough. And, and my, my problem was kind of a self-selected group because all of the running groups that I was involved in, I think had very similar motives to me. I, I don't remember a single person saying, I sure hope I can lose these last 10 pounds. And I, I just don't remember anybody ever even hinting, I'm doing this to impress my friends. Right. I, I just felt like, but a lot of people had some of these other motives that I mentioned. Uh, okay, have you ever pushed yourself too far? <laughs> In thinking about this, um, my gut reaction is no. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> in talking to my parents and my wife, <laughs> then uh, my wife talked to me about one of uh, one of my races, and we pretty sure that it was at um, at Kansas seventy point three, where. I ended up rehydrating in the medical tent and um, just kind of went there to make sure that everything would work out all right and I was going to be okay and all of that kind of a deal. And uh, my wife's opinion, of course, is that, okay, this is too far. This is not good. <laughs> she teases me. She's like, your opinion is if you don't end up in the medical tent, if you don't end up, you know, pushing and giving everything that you've got, then you did something wrong. And that's kind of true. It's so much that, you know, if I don't leave everything out there on the course and get the best time that I can and do everything that I can, I, 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 wait, what happened? Your attitude was, if I don't end up in the medical tent, I'm a failure. <laughs> I don't know if I quite go that far, but... Um, you know, it just, it, it, you do what, you, I did what I needed to to accomplish the goal. And when I did uh, Louisville Full Iron Man, um, April teases me now about it. She's like, you didn't even come over and give me a kiss. You waved at me and kept running. <laughs> I'm like, I'm in the race. <laughs> and I think someday, 
if I were to do another Iron Man, I might try, maybe I'll do another one for speed, we'll see. But um, <laughs> at some point I might try doing one just for the sake of doing it and not be concerned about time and do mm-hmm. stuff like go over and give the kids and the wife a hug several times, you know, and that kind of deal. As long as I make it to a finish line before they pull you off the course, which they will do in a full Iron Man, by the right. way, um, right. then... Uh, then I'd be okay with that. And just, but at the time, my goals were to get the best time that I could. So, okay. So if we have to wind up in the medical tent <laughs> in order to be considered, hey, I left everything on the field. Then I guess this leads to my next question. What do you think the dumbest thing in training you've ever done is? <sighs> the worst ones that I think of when I look back and think about it is the equipment failures that I've had over the years in terms of, like, for example, um, I remember one race I did uh, Tin Man Triathlon in Topeka, and I didn't do a good job prepping the day before. I didn't take the race as seriously as I probably should have. And I went there, and I didn't even bring my running shoes because I accidentally left them at home. And so I ended up running the whole thing in my sandals. What? (laughs) So, so silly looking back on it. (laughs) But I, I just... Um, How many minutes did that add no. to your time? Not as bad as you would think, actually. You know, you could have became internationally famous then as the promoter <laughs> of the sandal, you know, philosophy. You could have created a movement. Yeah, right. It could have been like a whole separate business or something. Uh, okay, what do you think the smartest thing you've ever done in training is? Mm. I think that one of the things that I did that I really like, and I will get into some other issues later on or some other topics later on, but brickwork from, first off, for your listeners who don't know, brickwork in triathlons is where you combine two or three of the sports simultaneously or in the same day. So I heard a speaker once who talked about that every time that you get off the bike, then you should go off and do at least some running. Maybe it's even a quarter to a half a mile, but something so that you're training your legs Mm. to go make that transition because so often if you don't, then your legs just feel completely weird and they're all out of sorts and it takes you a significant amount of the race just to get your legs ready to run, much less make that transition. And so to me one of the smart things that I did was every time that I got off the bike, I would put on my running shoes and do at least some running and that way conditioning my legs to be able to make that transition. Okay, so at least some version of brickwork is probably the smartest thing. I think that it's good. And to me, the swim to bike transition isn't as big of a deal. Um, I remember thinking in the back of my mind, yeah, for the first time ever in like however many hours that it takes you or however long it takes you to do the swim, I can actually breathe. You know, I'm not just gasping for air every third or fourth stroke or whatever it is. Um, I can actually get out and I can breathe. And that to me was always a very welcome message and welcome transition. But, uh, but making that transition from being tucked down and tight on your bike and especially down in aero bars of 
good portion of the ride to now all of a sudden stretched out and running and that can be very very hard on your legs mm, well and and you mentioned this to me at one point and and i just had never thought about this but if i am biking for well over 100 miles and my legs are moving in circles moving in circles moving in circles and then i get off of a bike and then i actually start to run on pavement this is just like going from earth to the moon it's just <laughs> yeah. very 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 different yeah so you, you do need the train for that so, okay, okay. Um, let's discuss some of the ripple effects of training for an Ironman or a marathon or a triathlon into the rest of your life. So I, I believe we've known each other since 2007, and I'm just not in, I'm just, I'm very impressed with your work ethic. In many respects, Tom, you're a role model for me. Um, you just always do 100% professional behavior at your job uh, I, I've known you where you have sought out extra and helpful things to do at work uh, you're definitely not one of those workers who waits to be told what to do you're certainly open to what the manager or the leader is telling you but but you always kind of go above and beyond um, you've become responsible for the safety of over a hundred roofers yes how many do you think Right now, I'm guessing the company probably has about 140 roofers and 40 sheet metal guys, so we've probably got about 180 guys in the field. Okay, and we could talk about that for quite some time, but if somebody is up 2, 3, 4, 5, 10, 20, 30 stories, uh, and if they fall, uh, they could die, or if it's not that far, they could break an arm or break a leg or land in some hot tar and wind up with first, second, or third degree burns. So, I mean, you are responsible for the health and safety of a tremendous number of people. And I, I've known you long enough that you just don't come in with the rules and regulations and say, guys, this is the way it's got to be. Shut up and do it. Because, you know, if you try that, the minute you leave, the minute you go to the next job site, then people say, well, screw that guy. And then they go back to doing things the way they want to do them. And so instead, I think you've really worked very hard to build relationships with people. In other words, you've really done what it takes. I, I feel like some leaders would just come in and say, shut up and do it. And then if somebody gets hurt, then they would say, well, that's on them. That's their fault. They didn't do what I said, but that was not your attitude. You took kind of a Jocko Willink extreme ownership position, which is everything that happens here, I'm responsible for. So if I'm not around, I need to really make sure that these guys are okay. Um, that's just how you are. So I, I'm just wondering, are you just naturally a devoted person, a hardworking person, or do you have to develop this in yourself? How does that work? Or do you just do this stuff by instinct, or, or do you consciously try to become a devoted, self-disciplined person? That was a very long lead-in. I'm sorry about that. <laughs> okay, no worries, Tim. Um, I think it is both, but in reflecting on the question, I think a lot of it is natural and my own personality. I I want to jump the first into something. I want to you know basically do what it takes to get the job done, and whether that's something professional or something with the family or something. Um, you know, a personal hobby like triathlons, um, you know, I, I want to find that best way. I want to find that right solution. And I think that that's just kind of my personality. 
Um, do I have to work out sometimes? Oh, absolutely I do. And some mornings then you don't want to get out of bed and go out and do something. But, um, but I like the work that I do. I believe that it's good work. I believe that it's important work. And so, you know, I, I do what it takes. That's really, really awesome. And I do believe that one of the keys to life is getting rid of your personal conflicts. You know, if part of you wants to be lazy and the other part of you wants to be hardworking, it's really helpful if you can figure out a way to kill the part of you that wants to be lazy <laughs> or say, hey, relaxation is important. Let's do that for the last hour of the day. It's just, it's really helpful to not have to fight with yourself all the time. And, and maybe you just don't have to fight with yourself all the time. Yeah. But, but I, I also feel like habit is something that you've developed over time. Maybe it feels natural and easy to you, but but you've been doing it for so long that I guess you've practiced. You've just practiced and practiced and practiced. And so I just want to compliment you on that. Thank is you. there is there an area of life where you wish you had more self-discipline? <laughs> um, we were at my office earlier today, and uh, I would love to have more of my desk organized. I'd love to have um, more of different aspects of my life organized. And uh, I, I tend to chase after what in my mind is the bigger important goal and not go back and organize the paperwork as much. And I, I, I have it, and I know where it is, and I can deal with it as I need to. But I'm always trying to deal with that next big problem or reach that next big goal rather than go back, pick up the pieces like probably I maybe should sometimes and, uh, and reorganize and make sure that everything's straight. If you did that, do you think that you'd be saving time or being more efficient? <sighs> That's a great question. I wish I knew the answer to it. Okay. Uh, how do you relax? Um, the end of the night, just kind of unwinding. Maybe it's playing on my phone for a little bit. Um, maybe it's looking at Facebook. Maybe it's watching a show, um, drinking a cup of tea. Um, you know, it, it just kind of not worrying about wherever the problem is. And thinking about it, I probably do it most days where I give myself a little bit of time. And I think that it's important for ourselves to give ourselves the time at least most days. Some days then, you know, it gets too busy and you have to deal with the kids and then, okay, you have to get to bed so that you can wake up the next morning and do it all over again. But a lot of days it's important to have at least a little bit of time where it's not scheduled or at least it's scheduled for, you know what, I'm just going to do what I feel like I want to do to relax. Okay, and if it's a silly TV show or if it's, I don't know, a game on your phone or something like that, then hey, that's that's the relax time and that's just what we need to be high-functioning the rest of the time. Yep. Okay, okay. Um, what phase of life are you in right now? Right now, the big two things that I, uh, that I tend to focus on, one is work and two is the family. Um, and trying to do things with my kids when I'm able to, um, make sure that my safety program, I'm, um, it, we've kind of discussed this beat around the bush, but um, I'm a safety professional. I'm a director of safety at a large construction firm. And, uh, you know, making sure to build up my safety program and keep my workers safe, um, the workers at the company safe, 
and then come home and do what I need to to help the kids and maybe that's reading maybe it's you know learning something new or a new skill um, but you know trying to build up those two areas of my life my work and my kids okay my family uh, so a person who's as accomplished as much as you've accomplished who or what inspires you hmm think to me the idea it's it boils down to stuff like philosophies and inspirational concepts um, you know and maybe that's something like again to refer back to Stephen Covey um, that we have the ability to make our own decisions, to go out and shape our own life, or maybe that's the idea of, you know, I can reach that next big goal, or maybe it's the, you know, whatever it is, but the ideology of making the world a better place and Mm -hmm. trying to think about how we can be that solution to a problem it just it invigorates me and it excites me. The uh, the author that you mentioned for people who are unaware is uh, Stephen Covey, who wrote the Seven Habits of Highly Effective People, which was published in 1990 and still frequently pops up in Amazon's top 100. Thirty plus years after the fact, it is still in the top 100 best-selling books across the United States. His first habit was be proactive, which is basically a belief that there's a gap between stimulus and response. Like life might kick you in the shins, but you have a moment or a second where you can choose how you are going to respond. So it's a very, very optimistic philosophy. Instead of saying, I have no options, I have no choices, his belief is no matter how bad or awful the situation is, you still have a gap between stimulus and response. And and to be human is to understand that you can choose your response. And I I believe that's what you're referring to. Precisely. Okay. And and I I believe that personally, and I think that that's very beautiful. And, And I want to mention that he gets this philosophy from the hardest cases imaginable because he refers to a book by Viktor Frankl, Man's Search for Meaning. And Viktor Frankl was in the Holocaust. I believe he was in Auschwitz. And so Frankl in Auschwitz is thinking, I am slated to die. And he felt, I have no choices. I have no options. I am slated to die. I am going to be the victim of a genocide. And his brain, his very, very human brain, he had a very human moment, just rebelled against this and said, So the stimulus is, the Nazis are going to kill me, but there's still a gap. I can choose how I'm going to respond. I can act with grace toward the people around me. Uh, I can react to this in a very, very poor way. So I can die on my feet, or I can die on my knees quivering, and that was the gap between stimulus and response. And so this was Covey's point, is that he took the hardest case imaginable, somebody in Auschwitz, and instead we still have the choice in how we choose to respond to things. And I I just think that's very optimistic, but maybe realistic and just very positive as well. So, 
So that's, that's a beautiful philosophy to live by. Uh, so, okay, I'd like for you to maybe give some people just a little bit of advice. So somebody comes to you and this person is maybe 16 to, I don't know, 28 or 30 years old, and they say, I want to do an Ironman. <laughs> what would you tell them? I'd be really excited for them, but I would encourage them to build slowly. Um, you're talking about injuries, and as we've discussed, injuries is a big part of my story. But several of my injuries, you know, it's been the traumatic experience that's happened. It hasn't been because I didn't have the foundation in my training. And I think that that's one of the biggest things that I would try to steer them towards. And I've read several studies in terms of, you know, you shouldn't do more than 10% in your next big race or in your next um, big training run than what you've done before. And so running the marathon, for example, you don't start off by going out and running 26.2 miles. You start off by going out and running one mile and then you build that and maybe you'd run the mile for a little bit and then you build up to two miles and then, you know, in my training, I typically, you know, as you get into those middle numbers, build every two, two miles a week or something like that, or two miles every two weeks or something like that. And, you know, build it up slowly rather than trying to make giant leaps. Because I think that it's when we make giant leaps and we don't have the foundation to be able to build upon, that's when you start to get into injury. And looking back on it, the journey is really exciting too, you know, and being able to finish a full marathon, being able to finish a half Ironman, and then being able to take all of that and go and do a full Ironman. And so enjoying the journey and enjoying the fact that you're getting the foundation that you need in order to sit, I'm going to call it safely, you know, from an injury standpoint, safely build up to those kind of longer distances. Okay, so build up incrementally. Yes. Uh, if you've never ran before and the first day you go out there and you feel like running 10 miles, you're probably courting injury. Right. Okay, so build up slowly over time. Okay, then let's say a person has completed an Ironman and they come to you and they say, I would like to do 20 Ironman. <laughs> I would like to do one a year for the next 20 years. Do you have thoughts on this? Looking back and reflecting on, I am so excited that I did both of my Ironman races. And the first one I did... Um, Right around the time that uh, that April and I, my wife and I met, um, maybe even a little bit before, um, and then the second one that I did shortly after we got married, when she was pregnant with our first child, and there's a picture from uh, from Iron Man Louisville that I love, where she's pregnant and uh, holding up a sign that says "Go Dad Go." Oh, that's yeah. awesome. And for me, that was really very transitional type time frame because it was after that that I basically retired from that phase of my life, that season, and I really didn't do a lot of races. I've done a couple of, you know, maybe a half marathon here or something like that or, you know, something like that over years, but... I haven't really run seriously. I haven't done any triathlons seriously since then. 
And so to this person who wants to run 20 and one a year for the next 20 years, so much changes in 20 years and you don't know where you're going to be and where God's going to take you. And right now, for me to even take the time to train for a sprint triathlon, which I do want to do this year, but it is a time commitment that I feel like I've got to balance that with making sure that I'm taking care of the company and making sure that I'm taking care of my family and giving my kids and everyone what they need. And so, you know, you have these seasons of your life and I can see maybe someday when the kids are grown and I want to start racing again and, you know, doing that slower, enjoy the moment type triathlon where I'm not going for speed. But it's, again, a season of your life and being open to where is God taking you? What does he want you to do at this time in your life? Okay, so if a person's aiming for 20, maybe a good piece of advice would be as hey, just don't waste any time. Get started on that first one now. Because maybe you'll get married and have nine kids. Or maybe you'll take on the world's greatest job. And that will require 80 hours a week. Uh, You know, maybe you'll have to move to Madagascar. We just don't know where life is going to take us. So make the most of this moment right now and work hard at this moment right now. Is that kind of what I'm hearing? Yeah, I think that's very true, Tim. Would it also be fair to say that, well, okay, in a very, very happy decade in the United States, people used to say, you can have it all. And then somebody else came along and responded to that and said, no, actually, you can't have it all. (laughs) And then a third person came along and said, no, you can have it all, just not all at the same time. I think I agree with that person the most. Okay, so out of A, B, and C, we're going to choose C. You can have it all, just not all at the same time. Yeah. Okay, fair enough. Uh, I guess my last question is this. So let's say that you are 100 years old and you are sitting on the porch of your house and your loving wife is holding your hand and you are surrounded by children and grandchildren and people say, Grandpa, what about your life was just the best, the most beautiful? Uh, What do you want to tell us today, Grandpa? Hmm. I'm thinking about the question. I'm thinking about my marathon at my uh, at Chesapeake Man, and it, my nieces and nephews came out, and they were on the sidelines cheering me on. And uh, and then when I did cross the finish line, being surrounded by family and people who loved me, and you know, hugged and all of that kind of thing, and I um. I think about when my grandma Ruzika died and she had a tremendous faith, loved Jesus very, very deeply and uh, we all surrounded her, you know, another time when it was a critical moment that family was all together and, you know, kind of to your question, you know, at the end of her life then we were all together and all praying and all um, sad but we were happy that we were there with her in that moment and I think that what the light, the impact that I would like to make, the message that I want to leave, the thing that excites me the most when I'm a hundred and thinking about what I would want for that time frame. My parents have 17 grandkids 
and they travel all over the country to see everybody and now start of uh, some of their grandkids, my nieces and nephews are starting to uh, graduate from high school, graduate from college and go off and have their own lives and um, if I get to that point and you know have a number of grandkids and have my own kids and thinking about Grandma Ruzica and the faith that she had and how that faith got passed on to us when I uh, when I read the book of Acts with my kids and their kid Bible then I always uh, talk about how and Jesus passed on that faith to his disciples and they went on and passed it on to their disciples and you know it went and went and went and then my grandma taught me and now I'm here teaching you and if at the end of my days, if I can look at however many grandkids that there are, however I've impacted those kids, and think that the faith that was passed to me, the excitement that I have for Jesus, and that love of him, I've now spread that on to so many other people. That, that is why I would love to leave as my legacy. And remind me, what was that favorite Bible verse that you had? In the book of Acts, and um, it's where Jesus, it's near the beginning, and it's where uh, the ascension to heaven, where Jesus goes up into, uh, goes up into heaven. And he says, it's not as much about his words, well, no, I take that back, because you're right, Tim, he does say, he says, I'm going to screw it up because I won't remember exactly. But, um, you know, basically the message is go and make disciples of the whole world. That's beautiful. It's beautiful, Tom. Well, I really appreciate you taking the time to chat with me. Absolutely. I believe this is going to be incredibly inspiring for other people, and uh, you're a good friend. Thank you. Thank you, Tim. Tom, I think that was fantastic. Thank you for listening to this episode of Seemingly Ordinary. The two biggest favors you can do for me would be for you to share this podcast and also for you to check out my two thrillers on Amazon and my teen money book. Until Thursday.